Hello, and welcome to another episode of ERG Power Talk. I'm your host, Joe Santana. That clip you just heard is from the song Freedom of Choice by Devo. And choice is the topic we're going to be talking about today. Experts tell us that we humans make about 35,000 choices every single day. And these choices, conscious or unconscious, determine how we show up in life and how we perform. And these same experts tell us that we are hardwired to resist change, which presents a challenge for ERG leaders and others who want to make people in their organizations more equitable and inclusive. That challenge is simply this. How can you get around that big natural resistance that humans have to change? Well, today we're going to explore something called choice theory. We're going to look at how understanding choice theory can give you the tools that you need to engage and draw in others who may not see the world exactly the way you do. We'll also look at how the choice theory model can provide a new way for you to provide a bridge that connects people who may not on the surface appear to be like each other. We've got a special guest lined up to help with this discussion, but before we introduce her, let's take a moment to revisit our mission and acknowledge our sponsors. This is ERG Power Talk, and I'm your host, Joe Santana. The purpose of ERG Power Talk is to provide a forum for the exchange of great ideas and inspiration for ERG leaders, as well as others who are interested in supporting ERGs. No more waiting until the next conference and praying that you have the budget to travel to the conference in order to find great ideas and stimulation toward action. Just subscribe and listen at your convenience. Before we begin, a quick note of thanks to our supporters and sponsors, Bear Ringer Ingelheim, CVS Health, Dollar General, Freighter Health and Wisconsin Medical College, Mass Mutual, McCormick, Johnson Controls, Pitney Bowes, Daimler Trucks North America, and Sony Pictures Entertainment. Now, let's go straight to the program. Our guest today is a licensed clinical professional counselor who is certified in choice theory and reality theory. She is currently president and lead coach at the Academy of Choice. She's also an author of several published books, the creator of the Choice Theory Coaching Program, and holds the position of Executive Director for William Glasser International. Kim Olver, a licensed clinical professional counselor and a board-certified coach. Welcome to the show, Kim. So, of all the directions that you could have taken with your career, why did you choose to focus on Choice Theory? Oh, like like most people, a lot of uh, what's happened in my adult life happened by, I, I could say accident or I could say some divine providence, but I was working out of college at a residential program that was housing recently deinstitutionalized schizophrenics. And I did that for five years and I had a conflict with my boss and decided I needed to look for another job. And the job that I decided to go to. I had three offers and the one I went to was a job that said they were going to teach me reality therapy. I didn't have any idea what that was back then. And so I thought, well, this is great because at that time I only had a bachelor's degree and I wanted some more education, but I had young children. So I went into this job and three weeks in, I had my first training in choice theory and reality therapy. And it just made so much sense because as a person graduating from a psych program and undergrad back then, we were taught to be what they called eclectic. So you take a little of this and a little of that and a little of that and throw it against the wall and see what sticks. And it felt like I was flying by the seat of my pants, even though, I mean, I had some success, but choice theory gave me a real concrete way of looking at people and why they do what they do. And the theory is always there. When something you're trying isn't working, you can go back to the theory and come up with your next steps. And that's what I loved about it. So I just dove right in and I've been diving ever since. It sounds pretty comprehensive. So for those that are listening who are not familiar with what choice theory is, can you give us a working definition? Well, choice theory talks about what motivates people. That's the first thing. And 
Dr. Glasser, who was the founder of Choice Theory, postulates that there are five basic needs that all humans have, and these are the needs that drive people at home and at work in life. The other thing about Choice Theory is you cannot force people to do what they don't want to do. No matter how hard you try, you put a gun to someone's head, and if they really don't want to do it, they'll resist. And you spoke of that resistance already in your introduction. So choice theory is a way of trying to align with the resistance in a sense. And when I say that, I mean, when you have information about the five basic needs, you can observe people and figure out at least an educated guess about what's driving their behavior, what's motivating their behavior. And then you want to find a way to align what you want with something they also want which tends to sneak past the resistance. So that's what I would say about choice theory. It's funny because when I teach choice theory, I usually start with my introduction and and I'll say, I love choice theory. My job this week, because it's a four day training, my job this week is to teach you choice theory. My job is not to make you love it as much as I do. I couldn't do that if I wanted to. So I'm gonna give you the information and you get to decide what you think about it at the end. And I'm not going to be mad if you tell me you don't like it. So already you take away the resistance of people who are thinking it's really hard when people are told they have to go to a mandatory choice theory training. There's a little bit of an oxymoronish quality to that. <laughs> and so a lot of people come in like this and what are you going to teach me? And as soon as I say that, they're able to lean in and actually hear what I'm saying without that major resistance. Of course, there's still a little resistance there because it it flies in the face of what they believe to be true. But it helps when you stop trying to force people to think your way. And that same is true with, with diversity. You can't force people to think your way. You can regulate their behavior with rules and regulations, and you can have punishment and consequences when they break those rules. But when nobody's watching, People do what they want to do. And so we have to, I believe, the way to move the diversity initiative forward is to capture the hearts and minds of people. And you can't do that until you tap into their inner motivation and their inner desires. So that's, that's what I think may be different about choice theory. Interesting. You know, Kim, as you were talking, I jotted down just one word, judo. Because to me, it sounds like a form of judo where rather than resisting the other person's direction and energy, you basically redirect it. So give us an example of how this works. And feel free to use either a corporate or a personal example. I can tell you a story that has to do with corporate as well as an individual. It's the same story. So I was doing, I I've have a contract, I have a long-term contract with this organization in Pennsylvania who does uh, drug and alcohol rehab. And when I started, they had a really toxic environment in, this, in terms of the, the staff felt like they were here and they were working with these degenerate alcoholics and drug addicts. And their job was to, to yell in their face and tell them how terrible they were and what horrible choices they were making. Because the conventional wisdom at the time was people needed to bottom out before they could to really get better. And I agreed with their statement that people need to bottom out. So already we're not in, we're not uh, in competition. But then I said, it might be best if the person bottoms themselves out rather than you trying to bottom them out. Because when you're trying to bottom them out, they have to resist you. But if you just allow them to live their life and through the process of reality therapy, which by the way, I think is more of a coaching model than a therapy model. People get a little uh, nervous about the label reality therapy. So I call it choice coaching. Um, When you coach people to look at their behavior and their outcomes and help them bridge and make those connections that they got what they got because of what they did, not because of everything else going around them, but you don't tell them that. You ask them questions so that they can discover it themselves. 
And that's when there's movement. And that's the bottoming out. When you realize, man, what I'm doing is really counterproductive. I, I shouldn't be doing this. It's not helping me get to where I want to be. But you can't tell someone that. They have to come to that understanding on their own. Yeah. So for listeners who may not be familiar with reality therapy, which you call choice coaching, reality therapy is a form of counseling or coaching that views behaviors as choices. It states that the psychological symptoms that occur are not because of mental illness, but due to people irresponsibly choosing behaviors to fulfill their needs. So what you're doing is helping the person you are coaching to see the results of their choices, and you're giving them the opportunity if they want to make new choices. But what about when you're dealing with people who have what may appear to you to be totally irrational resistance? So say that you're trying to be logical, but they're just emoting. They're not interested in any facts that you want to share. They're just running on adrenaline, and that adrenaline is pushing them to resist you. What are some of the ways that you can attack that situation through choice coaching? Well, the first thing I would do is is change the word attack because we're I'm not going to attack it at all. <laughs> um, that that puts me as adversarial, right? And I don't yep. want to be adversarial. So um, when someone is really resistant and almost irrational, or maybe completely irrational from my perspective, I think the most important thing you can do is engage Stephen Covey's habit of seek first to understand, then to be understood. So me believing that they're being totally irrational is not going to help the situation. I need to understand why they think what they think. I just had a conversation like this with my brother, who I, I would say is a very intelligent guy. And we just had a conversation. It was a political conversation. And he is believing some things that I think are absolutely nuts, but he believes them and I don't believe them. And neither one of us can actually say we have firsthand knowledge and information that our position is correct. And so I have to ask myself the question in our conversation, what if what he believes really is true? So I become curious instead of judgmental and I ask him a lot of questions about it. And I'll ask him things like, well, what about this? Things that I believe, or what about that? Not in a confrontive way, but just in a help me understand how you think this way. And we're able to have a rational, it doesn't go to the irrational conversation then. It stays in the realm of rationality. And I think that when you do this kind of work in diversity, it's important to have the ability to make space for people having different beliefs. I remember one time I was doing a diversity training and I had a, a co-trainer with me who was African-American male. And we were doing this workshop at a foster care agency. And we spent such a good six hours with people. And we were, you know, we, we weren't done yet. People were saying goodbye and we were getting all these kudos and people were saying, man, you really helped me see things in a different way. And these two women on their way out the door, I could hear them. They weren't trying to be secretive about it. But one said to the other, I don't care what they say. It's wrong for Black people and white people to get married. And I wanted to fling myself and say, oh, my goodness, what did we just spend six hours doing? Did I completely waste my time? And when I started to feel that way, I had to check myself and say, you know, you have to honor what you taught today, which is that they have the right to think that. I can't stop them from having this thought, nor should I stop them. They can believe that it's wrong. What I try to help people understand is whatever your values and beliefs are, they're 100% correct for one person on the planet, and that's you. So you can hold your own values and beliefs. You can be a white supremacist. I'm probably not going to be your friend, but you can be that person and you can have those beliefs for you. But when you try to spread those beliefs to other people and make other people think like you do and you behave, that's the piece is the behavior in a way that's not okay. That's when we have to have a conversation, but you can think whatever you want. Um, I, my hope is always 
as I said, to capture hearts and minds of people, but I have to use choice theory with myself when I encounter someone who's just hell-bent on whatever they think and there's nothing I can do to change their mind. I tell myself, there's nothing you can do to change this person's mind. Let me move into a space where there are people who want to hear and want to learn and let me work with those folks. So that's, that's, you know, I want it. One of the things about choice theory is you focus on the things that you have impact on the, where your own power and control is. I don't have power and control with that person. I can recognize they have a legitimate position, but I'm not going to spend a lot of my time and energy there. I'm going to go where the people are who want to hear. That's very insightful, Kim. So how do you strike that balance in your efforts to influence some type of change in the other person while not crossing the line into being overbearing? How do you moderate yourself to stay in balance? And I like something you said earlier, that you find yourself applying choice theory to yourself. And I think that might be part of the answer. But what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm aware of the leadership continuum where you have the dictator type overbearing leaders on one end and you have your permissive laissez-faire managers on the other end and then you have a bunch of, of positions in between. And when I talk about the middle of that continuum where I believe the most effective leaders stay most of their day, I talk about how they're balancing things. They're balancing the goal of the organization with the needs of their people. They're balancing challenging employees with supporting them. And they're also balancing, you know how I talked about the five basic needs in the beginning of this broadcast. They're balancing what they need with what their people need as well as what the company needs. And so when I'm in a place where I feel like my needs have become more important than the people I'm working with, that's my sign that I'm, I'm at the line and maybe even cross the line. And I also keep in mind the uh, third law of Newton's third law of motion. Every action creates an equal and opposite reaction. And so I'm incredibly aware that as I push, I'm going to receive equal amounts of pushback, even when I'm only nudging and even when I'm just subtly suggesting. If I'm pushing, I'm going to get that resistance. I know it. It may not be in my face, but it's going to be there anyway. And so that's also knowing where the line is. And when I feel like in my mind, if I say to myself, ask the question, how can I make this person understand when that, when that thought comes to me? I know, whoa, back up, Kim. You're, you're, you're at the line, ready to go over. You got to do this in a different way. So there's a lot of conversation I have in my head <laughs> with myself yeah. when I'm talking to other people. Yeah, I can see that. Kim, you just referenced for the second time five needs. What are those needs? And do they map back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs? That's a great question, and people often think so, but no, they don't, because Maslow's needs were a model of ascending to self-actualization, and Glasser's needs are basic human needs that everybody needs every day. So there may be people on the planet who are not trying to build their way to self-actualization, but there are people, every person on the planet, who is trying to meet these five basic needs every day in order to feel satisfied and happy. So I think maybe it's important to just say what they are so that people understand um, in, in a small way. And I'll say before I do that, that when I do diversity and I have some time in an organization, I like to talk about the diversity of the needs. Because if, for example, I may be a high connection person and you might be a high freedom person. And if I'm on your team and I'm trying to move closer to you and I'm trying to talk to you about some personal things and I want to find out about your family and you're thinking, whoa, lady, back off. I, I got things to do and you don't know me like that and you shouldn't be talk asking me those things. We may have a conflict. So when you talk about diversity of needs, it can take the focus away from 
I'm an African-American, I'm a Hispanic, I'm a this, Latinx, I'm a that, I'm a woman, I'm a man. And you start talking more about the personal thing that makes us all human, which are these basic needs. And if we can look at the benefits of having people with each of these needs on the team, then we can start to appreciate them a little bit differently and take the rest of the stuff out of the equation. So the first need, of course, is survival, like Maslow talks about, but we also add to that safety and security. And it's really about, in a a workplace, safety and security, unless you're a first responder of some sort and your physical safety is, is at risk, right? It's most of us have our survival need met at work. It's the safety and security piece that that causes us some angst sometimes. So people who are high in safety and security are the people who are very aware of the rules and regulations. They want to make sure that we follow policies. And they often are saying, well, this has worked for 30 years. Why do we want to change it now? They're the ones that are most resistant to change. The next one is connection. And I talked to you about that. The connection people, they like to be involved in relationships. They are the people who can notice when somebody's a little off kilter before anybody says anything. They're they're good at sensing other people's energy. And they're also good at smoothing conflict between people. They don't like conflict. So they'll go in and they'll say, hey, what's going on with you two? Let me help you um, work this out. So a connection person is really helpful to have on the team because they kind of take care of that human element and that personal piece. Then there's the need for significance. And it's, it's great when you have a high significance person in charge of the team because the person with significance has the vision. And they're also the ones that can map out step-by-step step how to get to where we want to be. And they show up and they're invested. Um, one of the bad things about significance people is they can set a goal and accomplish it without too much difficulty because they're very focused on that goal and they find it hard to understand other people who can't do that too. But not everybody has that high need for significance. And then the freedom people, they're great to have on a team too, although they drive the survival people crazy because the freedom people are saying, hey, We've been doing that for 30 years. Let's look at doing something new and different. Why don't we try this? How about that? The freedom people are the ones who don't even know there's a box to be stuck in. They're on the outside of the box trying to figure out how to do some new things. They also tend to resist um, sometimes the, the deep connections that the connection people would like to foster. And the last one is the need for joy. And the need for joy, you know these folks at work because they have a great sense of humor. They they want to be playful at work. And sometimes your significance people don't like the joy people because they look like they're not getting any work done because they're always goofing around. But that doesn't mean that that's necessarily true. And of course, none of us are just one of these needs. We're a combination of all five, but we have one or two that are prominent for us. And And the way to know that they're prominent is to just kind of ask yourself, what is driving your behavior the majority of the time? And I know for me, my behavior is driven often by connection, but also freedom. So those are the two that are high for me. Um, And understanding what yours are and then learning about the needs of the people that you're involved with, either at home or at work in life, can really help you know how to tap into that person's needs. Just a quick example. When I worked at that foster care agency, my boss was a high significance person. And she was known for squashing people when they disagreed with her. And I often disagreed with her, as is common for a freedom person. And I wanted to find a way to speak to her so that she didn't squash me because I'm also a connection person. And that would have been painful for me. So what I did with her was I would often say, could I play, I would ask permission, could I play devil's advocate? And then I would say, well, what if, the, what if we do what you say and then this happens? And she could hear me because I knew that her need was power. And I often prefaced my conversation with, I know you have a really hard job running this organization and I would never want your job, but could I play devil's advocate for a minute? So I'm saying to her, in advance, I'm not a threat to you. 
So she didn't feel the need to squash me. So it's just understanding what's driving people. I'm not talking about playing games. I'm talking about being genuine with people, but knowing what's driving them and, and helping have a conversation that both of you can participate in productively. Yeah, that's a great example. Okay, so let's pause here and take stock of what we've learned about choice theory from Kim and how we can use it to work with others toward greater inclusion and connection. One, choice theory is about understanding other people's basic needs. These are needs that motivate everyone's behavior. Two, by understanding what motivates others, you can align your message with their needs, and that brings you one step closer to winning their hearts and their minds. The critical rule here is to follow the Stephen Covey rule, which is to seek to understand before seeking to be understood. Three, one key tool that Kim shared with us is to use questions to get to understand others versus engaging in arguments where we throw a statement against another statement to try to get the other person to see the world our way. Four, the five needs that we all have in various mixes that are what we strive to fulfill through our behaviors, according to choice theory, are the need for survival, which includes safety and security. People who value this highly tend to be aware of the rules and regulations and to follow policies. Next, we have the need for connection. People who value connection are highly tuned to the feelings of others and their relationships. After that, we have the need for significance. People who value significance tend to be visionaries and are highly focused goal setters. Next, we have the need for freedom. And people who value freedom tend not to be strict followers of rules or influence a lot by connection with others. And finally, we have the need for joy. And people who value joy tend to want to have fun. Now, all of us are driven by different levels of these various needs. In some of us, two or three of them may be more prominent than others. So there are none of us that are really driven by one singular need. We're all some combination. Five. A key to communicating effectively with others is understanding the mix of these needs that drive us as well as the mix of these needs that are driving their behavior. And finally, six, sometimes we just need to accept that despite all of the techniques in the world, we just can't change another person's mind and get them to engage with us. And that's fine. When that happens, just move on to others who want to hear what you have to say. And resist the urge to push, because remember, when you push, you're going to get pushed back. So now you have a general idea of what choice theory is all about and how you can start using it to make yourself and your groups more effective change agents. In the next segment of this interview, we will continue to go a bit deeper into choice theory and explore more examples of how you can use what you've learned in your ERG work. But before we continue, let's learn a little bit more about Kim and her work. I'll see you on the other side. Kim Olver is a licensed clinical professional counselor and a board-certified coach. She is the award-winning author of two books, Secrets of Happy Couples and Choosing Me Now. She also wrote A Choice Theory Guide to Relationships and Leveraging Diversity at Work with Sylvester Ball. She earned her DNI certificate from Cornell and speaks and trains on the topic, as well as facilitates multicultural conversations in a safe way. What Kim brings to the field of diversity is her extensive knowledge of choice theory psychology, which helps explain diversity of motivation using the five basic needs strengths, provides a GPS for navigating differences, and values the fullness of diversity of perceptions. Kim has trained on all seven continents with the exception of Antarctica and loves to combine the two things she loves, diversity, equity, and inclusion with choice theory psychology. For more information, please visit www.kimolver.com. That's www.kimolver.com. And we're back. Kim, in your experience, have you found that group culture impacts which of the five needs we spoke about earlier has a greater impact in shaping people and what people want? Sure. So 
Um, I don't have any research to support this. So what I'm saying is really anecdotal. I just want to be clear about that. But um, I know that if you're from a collectivistic culture, um, like like First Nations folks or um, African-American, that culture values the connection. Um, connection is important. You're looking at what's good for the group not necessarily what you want individually. And that can be really challenging if you're a freedom person by, by nature and you happen to be in a collectivistic group, you'll push against that and find yourself maybe on the fringe feeling maybe like you don't belong. If you're from an individualistic culture like the US, we tend to value freedom higher. So, having a conversation and i've had many of these where you know i early on in my in my career i was doing some counseling with a woman from uh, india and in her family she lived in the united states but uh, she wasn't born there and her family she was getting older which was like 22 or 23 and her family wanted to arrange a marriage for her and she and i was shocked Remember, I was young. <laughs> I hadn't done any of this diversity work, but I'm thinking, well, that's just wrong. You need to choose your own partner and marry who you want, <laughs> which was, you know, I, I thankfully, I got the supervision I needed before I said those things to her, but that was, was what was going on in my mind. So it's important to, to think about that and understand that certainly culture has influenced um, how we express our needs. I also think gender comes into play, although this is changing in the United States. But I think um, women tend to be higher in connection and men tend to be higher in significance. Now, I, I don't think that that's genetic. I don't think that that's the way it, it's meant necessarily meant to be. But I think that historically speaking, that's been fairly true. And you'll find now that if you have a woman who's in the workplace, who's demonstrating some significant behavior, significance behavior. Um, the research shows that she's not as well-liked because she's not matching the picture of connection that she's supposed to be exhibiting. She's supposed to be softer and kinder. So the man would be assertive. The woman would be a bitch, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I think it's important in today's world for women and for men, um, for women to find a way to be significant without alienating people and for men to find a way of expressing their connection while still maintaining their need for significance because both of those are really important in the workplace. And we have to find a way to do that without falling prey to um, people creating stereotypes around us if we're exhibiting behavior that doesn't match what they think we should be doing. Yeah, that's the big catch-22 that women face, where if they behave outside of the expectation in terms of their values and how they show up, they get demonized. On the other hand, if they conform and try to behave according to those expectations and so forth, then they confirm the stereotype, and that can be career-limiting. So it's a tough situation. And that's also true of just about every other dimension of diversity, where there may be stereotypical expectations about how members of certain groups should behave. So let's shift our attention now to the different ERG groups we have in corporations. Now, one of the things that these groups generally try to do is to drive people in their organizations toward being more open, equitable, inclusive, and accepting of diversity. And of course, they will often encounter overt resistance, as well as not overt, in-your-face resistance, but equally powerful covert resistance. What are some of the ways that you found that they can apply some of these choice theory approaches to effectively drive more people towards becoming more embracing, more equitable, and more inclusive? Thanks for asking that. Um, I think that plain and simple relationship is the root of all influence. So we have these separate groups, and I think that that's great because people need communion and they need their tribe and they need to be in, in a place where they can just be who they are and not worry about outside stereotypes or outside judgments. So I, I love that. And 
it's important for people to form relationships, social, friendship, informal relationships with people who are from different groups, because it's the only thing that will break down stereotypes. You have an idea about how a certain group behaves, and until you have experiences that challenge those beliefs, why would you ever change them? You're going to hold on to them. So I love the idea of having informal get-togethers with with across the groups and maybe even creating opportunities for different people to interact with one another on an individual basis. It's one of the things that I like to do now um, when I've done some diversity work uh, via Zoom. In the beginning, I thought, how in the heck am I going to do this? It's, you know, it's so personal and so interactive. But sending a pair or a triad or even four people to, the, to an individual room with a task that you want them to talk about has been really very effective because you talk about something that's important to everyone and you'll see how everybody has different opinions and beliefs about it. And we instruct in the beginning, of course, doing this kind of work, you have to have guidelines that create a safe and courageous place so people feel safe enough to be courageous and to say what they need to say without feeling like they're going to be attacked by that. And then the most amazing conversations happen, which then start little by little to tear down those stereotypes. Yes, yes. You know, Kim, I was recently reading about the difference between bonding and bridging groups. So briefly, a group of people held together by a shared part of their social identity, say they're Latinx, would be considered a bonded group. And as you say, there's a lot of great benefit to being in a bonded group. It's home, it's hearth. On the other hand, when a group or individuals from a bonded group connect with others they do not share common social characteristics with, that's called bridging. And of course, we get a lot of benefits from bridging, as you pointed out. That's how we become more familiar with how other people who are different from us think and feel. We also discover sometimes invisible connections we might have with people who we think of as different from us. And that is the beginning of the relationships that pull us closer together in a more inclusive and accepting way across these differences. And so I think you just made an excellent case for bridging because that's how we build relationships that will lead to more inclusion, and connection. You also mentioned working with people on Zoom, and a lot of our listeners are currently using Zoom and other platforms that are out there to meet with people in their bonded groups and doing some bridging as well. And these platforms do present a new set of challenges and opportunities. Now, it sounds like you found some opportunities there, but have you found that there are also some special challenges especially when it comes to bridging on these platforms. And how have you addressed those in your training work? Yeah, so I definitely have found the pros and cons to Zoom. I mean, there are definite challenges in the sense that you're not up close and personal. I love being in a room with people. I work with a training partner when I do diversity. So when one of us is speaking, the other one is kind of monitoring the room and looking at the behaviors and moving close or pulling away, depending on what's going on, can ask about, you know, what's happening. So I miss that in a Zoom session. I did a, I did a session where I had, you know, Zoom, you can have 25 people on your first screen and then it spills over to the second screen. So I can't even see everybody there, right? Because there's two screens. And that was crazy trying to flip back and forth and flip back and forth. I do like Zoom for the chat feature because people will ask questions in a chat that they might not raise their hand and have everybody look at them when they speak in a, in a training session. I also like the ability to create conversation starters and send people into chat rooms to have those conversations. And the, the reporting back from there has been really positive. And, uh, it, I find it's also helpful for people who have limited budgets to do this kind of training, to not have to pay to bring a speaker in their travel expenses and all of that, and they can just pay for the instruction time. So that means that some people are getting these ideas presented to them that wouldn't 
otherwise be getting it or they'd be getting, you know, the local guy. Or I remember when I worked at my foster care agency, my boss said, um, we can't pay for your partner to come from Chicago anymore, but we have Phil, he's black. He can do these trainings with you. And I thought, oh my goodness, I don't want to do them rather than to pull somebody who Phil's married to a white woman. He's never done diversity work. He's not somebody that is comfortable in front of a group. I don't, I, I don't want to, you know, not just anybody that represents a group can do this kind of work. I don't, I don't think it's about what you know about different groups of people, as well as it is about your ability to facilitate safe and courageous conversations. Yes, totally agree. And great tips for getting the most out of virtual meeting platforms. So Kim, back to the topic of bridging. One of the ways of encouraging bridging is to surface values and or interests shared by people who appear totally different. So you could take a group of people who appear totally different, black, white, Asian, etc., and show them how they share, say, Myers-Briggs scores or DISC categories. I imagine you could do the same with choice theory. One of the ways that I do that is by needs. So I'll say, I'd like all the love and belonging people to go have this conversation and they can connect on that shared feeling of priorities and importance. And I'd like the freedom people over here and the the, the uh, joy people over here. And I get them together and I ask them to make a case for why they deserve a place at the table. Mm. And so they they find their commonalities and then they they can bond over that. It's the beginning. It's certainly not the end, but it's the beginning. And uh, they get to know people in a different way. Most of the time, they're not getting to know, they're not having lunch, they're not golfing with, you know, people who are in different groups. And so this can be really helpful. Yeah, that's an excellent way to create bridges using these tools. So Kim, do you think it's a good idea for people who lead these groups to intentionally set up some meetings for bonding and other meetings for bridging. My thinking here is that in the meetings that focus on the bonded members, they can focus their attention on things the participants have in common. Whereas in bridging meetings, this can be all about understanding and drawing closer to people who are not part of the bonded group. What are your thoughts about this? Oh, absolutely. I am such a both and person. Um, I don't like to say one only. I, I think absolutely there is room for both of those things. And I'm a big advocate because otherwise what can happen is if all you're doing is the bonding, then it it can, it can turn into just a complaint session. Nothing happens from there. You just join together and yeah, you all have the same gripes and, and you can become totally disgruntled in your workplace in that way, rather than doing the bridging, which is to say, how can we take steps to make this better? Um, And I, I know In choice theory, this is another little bit of a difference. In choice theory, when I'm working with people, not necessarily in diversity, so I'm going to depart from diversity, but then come back and and maybe draw the, the connection. I do work with couples. And one often, one person in the couple is the one that wants to come for coaching and they are dragging their other partner in who's saying, I I don't want to, I don't think we need this. And so my question often to people is, whose problem is this? And it comes down to who's most upset by the problem. And if you're the one who's most upset, then I think the responsibility for change and helping the relationship falls to you because you're the one that's most upset. The other person has no motivation to do anything differently. You're the one in pain, so you're the one that needs to take some steps to uh, fix the situation, unless you want to stay in pain. I mean, that's always a choice. I'm not pushing people to get beyond their pain. But I think that in the field of diversity, I'm not trying to blame the victim in any way, because I know that there's been some atrocities committed in this country and other places, and I'm not trying to get away from that at all or the responsibility of that. But I do think that if you're the one that is in pain and want this to change, you have to look at what am I doing to, to maintain the situation the way that it is? And what can I do, to, even if it's just a little something, to show myself in a light that would break down the stereotype, maybe just a little, to maybe share with one person 
Um, I know that when Black Lives Matters movement came out um, again this last summer, it was really good in in the sense that people were home. <laughs> they couldn't not see it. And also, um, there, there were a lot of resources that came out around that. A lot of books were written about... Um, about white people needing to educate themselves because we can live in a little bubble. We don't see what's ha what happens to black people unless we're, we're in close communion with them. We don't see them get pulled over um, and, and embarrassed and their car searched and seats taken out of, I mean, I've seen that because I live in an area that's predominantly African-American. I shop with some uh, black folks, and I watch the store people follow them around. I mean, it, it happens like that. So, and I have many stories about myself and my coworker that we put in leveraging diversity at work where I had my eyes open a little bit. But Black Lives Matter, this, this movement this summer helped white people learn that there are resources. If you want to educate yourself, you can. And I don't like holding the, the group responsible for educating us. We need to educate ourselves. Uh, but that being said, you may be a person uh, who wants to educate people. And if you are, then please, by all means, there are people who want to be educated and watch and go the places where people want to hear you. Don't try to go in a place where you're going to be swimming upstream and everybody's going to hate every word that comes out of your mouth. That would be really demoralizing. You want to go somewhere where there are people who don't know you're not, so you're not preaching to the choir and you're not going to the enemies. You're going to the people who don't know what you have to share and who are interested in hearing it. And I think that that is another step that could be taken in the workplace where we could let people know what's happening with different groups and what their feelings are and their perceptions are. That's another thing about choice theory is we talk a lot about perception and how perceptions are formed and how they're different. So it helps explain politics right now where we see the same event and different groups come away with a different interpretation of what happened based on, first of all, it's about our, our five senses and what we're looking at, hearing, and, and focusing on. That's one thing. The knowledge that we have, what we our life experiences and the things that we've learned up until that point, and then our values, how we value the information that we're taking in. And so when, when you understand how perceptions form and how they're built, you can create a space for people to have different perceptions and to not feel like you have to change their perception. I never go at another person that I'm trying to influence with the idea that I, I want to change your perception. I want to understand yours and share mine. And maybe in my sharing and not being forceful about it, you'll be able to hear me. Because when you're forcing, I say we're a lot like those parents on the Charlie Brown cartoons that go, wah, 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 wah. We think that we're, we're influencing the person, but they're not even hearing us because we're doing it in, in too, too aggressive of a way. Yeah, that's right. So again, Kim, I think you've made a great case for why people in ERGs who want to make their organizations more equitable and inclusive need to dedicate some effort toward bridging, which ultimately is about reaching out to create relationships with those who on the surface may appear to be different from us. And I still have so many more questions for you, but we are running out of time. So before we go, what are some resources that are out there for any of our listeners who want to learn more about choice theory? Well, um, they could go to uh, wglasser.com and they could download the little book of choice theory for free. That's the first thing. Um, I would say that um, my book that I wrote with Sylvester Baugh uh, on leveraging diversity at work shows choice theory applied to the field of diversity. Um, and also Glasser's book, Choice Theory, is a good start there's also training for people who want to dive into training. And if they're interested in training, I would say get in touch with me and I'd be happy to uh, facilitate that. Either do it myself or send you in the direction of someone else that could do a good job with that. Excellent. And if they want to reach you directly, what's the best way to do that? They can reach me at uh, Kim Olver, and my name doesn't have an I in it. It's O-L-V-E-R at gmail.com. 
or Kim at academyofchoice.com. And anywhere on social media, I'm on, uh, I'm on Facebook under the Relationship Center. I'm on Instagram, LinkedIn, and uh, that's about it. I mean, there's more, but you don't need me to go on and on. You'll find me if you look for me on, on social media. That's fantastic, Kim. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. So here's what I got out of the second segment of this interview. One, building relationships across differences are a critical factor in driving away stereotypes and opening the way for more inclusion and connection. Two, while the use of internet platforms presents a challenge to bridging, these are not insurmountable. And in fact, it also presents a lot of opportunities, like the ability to draw out introverted people via chat and using virtual small group breakout rooms to connect people who are different from each other, albeit at remote locations, and then getting them to know each other by having them work together. Three, you can also create a bridge between people who belong to different demographic social groups by making them aware of their common motivational needs. You can have a group of three people who are from different races, different genders, but share the fact that they're all primarily driven by significance or driven by freedom or some combination thereof. Four, another good idea is to dedicate some of the meetings that you have with your ERGs to the care and feeding of the people who share a common social bond like gender, race, etc., but also to have other meetings that are designed to bridge into the group people who do not share the focused social characteristics of your group. This is a great way to encourage more cross-group connection and inclusion at the grassroots level. In these bridging meetings, as in all bridging encounters, approach them with curiosity to learn about others as opposed to trying to enlighten them or give them some other new way of thinking and changing their minds. Brian McGill, a human potential thought leader, international best-selling author, activist, and social entrepreneur, once said that, and I paraphrase, the power of getting to know one another is so immense, it's eclipsed only by first getting to know ourselves. Choice theory shows us how to do both of these things, and it shows us how through this knowledge of self and others, we can win hearts and minds across differences one relationship at a time. I invite you to make this your first step in the journey towards more bridging and connection. Thank you for tuning in to ERG Power Talk. If you enjoyed and got value out of this program, please like us and leave a favorable review at your podcast provider's site. Also, invite others to listen to the show. By the way, contact me if you're looking for an ERG Symposium keynote or a leader for your strategy workshop, new chair onboarding, and or ERG bootcamp. I can run these for you either in person or in a virtual setting. Also, for more great ideas and tips for your ERGs, get my book, Supercharge Your ERGs, 18 Tips to Power Up Your ERG Strategy on Amazon.com. I'm Joe Santana, and thanks again for tuning in.